Hello and welcome to CIO Leadership Live Australia. I'm Cathy O'Sullivan, Editor-in-Chief for CIO in APAC. My guest today is Michael Fagan, Chief Transformation Officer at Village Roadshow. Michael has held a number of senior IT leadership roles for some well-known brands here in Australia, as well as overseas in Europe, USA, and Asia. Welcome, Michael. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thanks, Cathy. Thanks for having me today. Oh, more than welcome and great to chat to another Irish person all the way down here on the other side of the world. And um, so firstly, can you give us an overview of your role at Village Roadshow and what your team looks after? Yeah, certainly. So uh, unfortunately, maybe a little bit about Village Roadshow. I was surprised at how much and how how big um, uh, this, the scope of our company's operations are. So uh, we own and operate uh, cinemas in Victoria in Australia. Uh, and Tasmania, and together with our partners event, we are the largest cinema exhibitor in the country. We also own and operate theme parks on the Gold Coast, so move Warner Brothers Movie World, Sea World, Wet and Wild, uh, amongst others. Uh, we also have a hotel at Sea World Resort. Uh, we have 150 rides, slides, and attractions, so uh, probably the biggest and best theme parks in Australia as well. Uh, and we also own a movie distribution business. So the, the new Hunger Games movie is, is coming out, distributed by us. If you saw The Matrix, you'll have seen Village Roadshow pictures. So quite a, a wide and and, and uh, very movie-focused uh, business. So movies, movies are in our, our DNA. It's a very innovative company. So the concept of gold class was actually invented by Village back in uh, 1997. It's since been copied by pretty much every major cinema exhibitor in the world. Uh, and my role at Village is to, I personally, I actually lead several functions within the, within the company. Uh, and I also provide a lot of support and um, it's intellectual horsepower and legs on the ground, arms and legs on the ground for the other leaders within the, within the company to get, to get things done. So quite a diverse range of stakeholders, um, I'm sure, and quite a diverse range of products that that village has there. So I'm sure it keeps you very busy. Um, but look, you've worked uh, in a number of geographies around the world, a number of industries. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach to transformation and, and how it has taken shape in your career? So I think with transformation, it's really about large, large pieces of change. Uh, and so I think it's something that is different to continuous improvement, where you're trying to get those one percenters every day, uh, whereas uh, transformation is really about big, big breakthroughs. You know? And those breakthroughs, and today's breakthrough becomes tomorrow's standard. So what we do, what we do now is we, as we try and, you know, massive figure out a massive uh, chunky problem that then can become a a day-to-day -day business as usual um uh, operation it's something that uh, i think is how i would approach transformation transformation is really something that is it's big and meaty and i think there's a shelf life to it as well which is different than that continuous operation um and i think it's it's, it's also one of those things that has a has many plenty of negative connotations about it as well um, and uh, there's positive and negative, and it can be it can be negative in, in you know in many different ways. So first of all, people don't change is change is hard. So even good change, so it can be, that can be tough for lots of people. Uh, there are plenty of people within organisations who are agitating for change and agitating for significant transformation. And if you uh, if you appoint a chief transformation officer and that change doesn't happen, then you risk alienating the people that do want to change as well as the people that don't want to change. So. So it's one of those things that is, um, it's, it can be a tough role. It can be a be a lonely role. Well, there's not many chief transformation uh, officers as well. I think the 
you know, if you'd ask what's what's the number one characteristic of a uh, you know of, of this type of CTO role, it's resilience. Right? You need to be able to be to be resilient to to push through you know roadblocks to you know go around a, road, a roadblock isn't really a roadblock. It's only how do you get around under, over, or through that roadblock. And that's something that is that I think is um you know can can be difficult within within organizations. Um yeah, I think which I think is very different to that that continuous improvement role. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, you know, definitely the view of a lot of CIOs I speak to that there is a big difference between a transformation program and a continuous improvement program. So then bringing it back to Village Roadshow, what does transformation mean for your organization and, and how is your digitization program tracking? Yeah, and I think with with, with Village, um, we, we came under a private equity ownership, and I came in around about that same time. I'm an employee of Village, but we had uh, not just a, the need a need to transform, but actually a boarding platform to transform. We had new owners who wanted things to run a certain way. We wanted to report on things a certain way, yeah? and they had a, a very short um, short horizon for for seeing significant change. So. We pretty much took the PL and went from top to bottom in terms of terms of large size, and we looked at every single piece of the uh, of the business. Yeah, so I mean, we've had significant personnel change. Uh, we are a much smaller, leaner organization. We're about from a, a head office or central office uh, point of view, we're about half the size of what we were uh, three years ago. Um, we've completely changed our partnership structure, so we have a, about forty percent less partners that we work with so we're much more meaningful to them and they're more meaningful to to us um that has flow and impacts into the value that we can we can extract from those partnerships and what it costs us to to extract that value um and i think probably the the biggest thing is around speed so you know it's uh you know perfect is the enemy of done i think um in in this role and now we are you know light light on business cases and and big on on getting things done so uh, we make significant change in, in short periods of time. And if, and if things don't work, we're, you know, that, that notion of one-way doors and, and two-way doors. So, you know, if something is a one-way door and, you know, you got to make sure you take your time to, to to go through that. So a decision like, like that might be, you know, who's your network and telco provider? That's a significant effort to change that. So that is something we take a, a lot of time around. But if something is a two-way door, so if that, that decision can be reversed really quickly, we will go and we will trial that. So we've trialed, uh, different operating models in cinemas. We try different rostering uh, solutions in uh, theme parks and in and in cinemas. Uh, we've tried different ways of how we interact in, with our um, uh, uh, with our with our providers. We try different way, different menus in in cinemas. Uh, very quick changes that we can make without having to go through massive business cases. And just seeing what works. I mean, there's a lot of educated guesswork, but we're actually seeing what, how do customers respond to some of the changes that we make. So that notion of speed is very important in a, in a transformation role. So you mentioned earlier, you know, transformation is hard. You know, you've got people agitating for change at one end and other people who are a bit resistant to it. Uh, resistant to it. What are some of those, like, how do you overcome some of those big challenges, whether it be culture, legacy, communication? What are some of those roadblocks that you've encountered in your previous experience of transformation? And do you have strategies for, for tackling them? Yeah, I think there's, I think it depends on the organization as to what exactly what the, what the major barriers are. Um, 
you know, and I think you have to have different strategies then for either those those companies or for the for the types of resistance that you that you come up against. I think the biggest thing is actually delivery. So when you start to deliver, then you get a reputation for delivering and you can kind of get a bit more trust. And particularly if it's done quickly, then it, it becomes like ripping the band-aid off uh, uh, very quickly. And it's a little bit, little bit less scary. So trying to get people to believe in a change and deliver on that change very quickly, I think is the biggest, that's the biggest tool that, tool that you have in your in your arsenal or in your toolkit. Um, so it, you know, it builds up because of a couple of things. One, it builds up um, goodwill within the with the owners of the company. It uh, builds up trust with the the leadership team that things can can and will change, and it gives a, an example or a new paradigm for the um, for the people in the organization. Yeah. So you know, I mean, I think it was it was a book. Mr. Fuller said, you know, don't try and kill the dinosaur, try and create the, the gazelle. We're really talking about create, don't try and change the old way of doing it, but actually just create the new way of doing it. Give, give people the example that they can follow. And when they do that, then they will willingly follow. And you're not trying to change the old or, or take, take something away and say, actually, here's something new that you, you want people to willingly, um, you know, willingly embrace. So I think the biggest thing is around, is around speed. Uh, the second thing would be around, uh, transparency and communication, you know, where possible. And bring you know bringing that the rest of the leadership team along uh, for that journey because in many ways I'm not I'm not transforming somebody that I own or a function that is within you know my responsibility it's actually somebody else's so working with the those functional leaders and the rest of the executive and the board and saying you know is this something that we want to do is it if it is then let's let's go after it and let's do it in a you know in a significant way but if it's not something we want then let, let's see, let's not do that so there's been plenty of times where you know, I've looked at something and I I think it's a good idea and I do my best to persuade the you know an operational leader or a or a member of the board or a C-suite executive and they say, I just don't think there's something in that. And I say, okay, that's fine. Let's uh, let's leave that, let's park that. Maybe we'll come back to that later, but but let's look after something else. Because I like I said, I think the you know, I keep coming back to you know, in this role, you've got to be delivering, you've got to be delivering value and you've got to be delivering value value very quickly. And if you're sitting around debating whether there's actually value to be had or or you can actually you know, extract that value, then that's not a good place to be. And you need to be on that on that delivery mode. Absolutely. And the buy-in as well, as you say, from, from the exact group of the board that they really want you to do it. Yeah. Um, so at the CIO Summit in New Zealand earlier this year, you spoke about why CIOs should simplify <clears throat> and, and kill their darlings, essentially. Can you elaborate, I guess, on why you think this is important and, and how CIOs should set about doing this? Yeah, well, first, you know, the concept of kill your darlings is, is really that the, it's about saying no to good ideas so that you can say yes to great ideas. The, there's a near infinite amount of work to be done in, in any organization. If you look at the big long list of things that, that, can, that could be done, it's, it's very, very long. And it's going to be a bigger list than your resources can deliver on. So you need to be able to say no to certain things. Uh, so really, that's that's the concept behind it. I'm going to say no to you know these these few unimportant things because I'm going to do these smaller number of really important things. And if you think about you know even within organisations, you know it's that that Pareto rule. Um, you know, is as true in in in, in large organisations as well as in small organisations. There's a small number of things that we do to deliver an outsized benefit. So we need to make sure that we we know what those things are. We're doing them and we're doing them very well. 
And I think what gets in the way a lot of the times is that, you know, it's all the noise around the outside that prevents us from focusing on and delivering those really, really important things, you know, for our for our customers. And so, I mean, I can think of, you know, plenty of examples like this, but but I've, I've in, in every IT team I've worked in the last 10 years, uh, when I walk in, I say, well, what, what are we working on? Uh, and I've helped and coached many different business. In nearly every business, there is more projects than there are people in, in IT. So you have, you know, 1.x projects per person. It's just not possible to deliver on all that stuff. And if you ask the team to to deliver it, they, they will do their best. IT people, have, they've got a great service focus. They will try and deliver everything. Uh, but that's a bad place to be in when you <clears throat> you only want a small number. Of, if you're a, you know, an executive or a, or, a, or a senior stakeholder, there's a small number of things you actually want to, to get done. So, so being clear for our team that this is the stuff that we want to do because it's going to have an outsized impact for our customers and, and then a flow-on impact for ourselves internally, being crystal clear on what those things are is very, very important. So then, you know, in your role as Chief Transformation Officer, how do you collaborate and influence, you know, the, the rest of the C-suite and, you know, even as far as um, the board, how, how do you um, influence in, the, in that role? Well, I mean, I mean, but just, you know, if I can just follow on that last, that last question, the, I think the first thing is actually it will be, um, it's, it's, it's certainly about involving those people in the decision-making process. You know? So it's gathering that, that list of work, saying here's all the things that we have to do. Can we assign a value to each piece of work? You know, and can a, value, can a value be assigned with? Is there a senior stakeholder that owns, um, that owns each piece of work and says, yes, I want this to happen because I can see the, 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 the hard benefits as well as the soft benefits? Uh, and so I think really involving the leadership team in those decisions uh, and then providing them with the expertise or the arms and legs to get the work done. I think that's why I think in many or in most organizations, I think that the leadership team, they, they have all the answers, what they don't have are the questions. So they're looking for someone to help them fight, from, provide the uh, the right questions and then help them deliver on that. Yeah, I think, you know, strategy is cheap, but execution is, is expensive and difficult to do. And that's where my role comes in. Now, because I'm able, I'm as comfortable playing in the supply chain role, uh, reviewing payroll and cinemas, looking at the menus that we have in our, you know, in our theme parks. Uh, I'm, a, I'm equally as comfortable playing in all of those spaces or looking at network transformations or, or cyber security. And it's something that can, that can help, you know, uh, provide a, a bit of value add in each one of those areas. Fascinating. I'm still so impressed by just the the absolute, you know, the the number of things that you look after there. It's quite impressive. And um, so, Michael, the te technology was brought into sharp focus for a lot of organizations during the pandemic and, you know, a lot of pressure being put on IT leaders and their teams. Do you think it's changed the role of a CIO or is it essentially still the same? I think I think it's changed. I think it, I think it's probably be it's a more high profile role now, because uh, I think you, you you're either many organisations struggle with the work from home that even just getting into technology right that was a that was a bad time to be a CIO if you if you weren't prepared for that. Uh, conversely, if you if it went seamlessly, then it was a good time to be to be a CIO. Uh, People uh, shopping from home again, digitally enabled, uh, you know, led by led by business teams, but actually enabled by the IT teams. I think that's become become more into focus. And cybersecurity is another area now where I think uh, you know, you typically falls under the remit of a of an IT team. 
And given what's happened with, you know, particularly in Australia, with Optus, Medicare, uh, having a good security posture and being able to articulate that to the board uh, and explain and to, you know, pe- you know people within the organisations, I think, I, th- I think it's a much more high profile role now than it was uh, pre-pandemic. And I think more is expected of a CIO. So I don't know whether that's a change for the better or yeah, <laughs> or not. Yeah. But, cer- but certainly there's a, um, I think it's much less, I think, it's, it's, it's a lot less cost focused and more around value added delivery. So then when it comes to leadership of a CIO, what do you think makes some of the, I guess, key attributes of a successful modern day CIO, especially when it comes to that leadership piece? I think for, you know, for, for CIOs, they really need to have a good business focus. And I think there's a, you know, if I look at the organizations I've worked in in the past, you can see where, you know, there, there are you know functions even within IT. There'll be you know a business analyst function or a business engagement function or a, a strategy and and business you know business improvement function within within IT. And they're kind of the the people that sit between you know pure business folks and pure IT folks and do that translation um, uh, piece. You need to be good at that. You need to be as as comfortable in the in the business sphere as you are in the in the IT sphere. And you're you're almost playing a translation role between the between the two worlds. Um, and I know in, in my role as you know, chief transformation officer, I'm, I think it's a very privileged role because I have I have all of IT reports to me, but I also have several uh, several business functions. But whenever somebody comes up and they say like, "Well, I need an IT system to do this," I say, "Well, well do you?" Yeah. I think that's probably almost the first question is it's not about how do, how do I have an IT solution for this, but actually how do I have the best solution for this? Very often, which is not IT, because if you know if you want to roll out a new ERP, you talk about months worth of work versus. It might be a simple, uh, you know, approach to how you do rostering, for example. So, within our cinema division, uh, we are looking at our our our, our, our labour and payroll models within uh, within cinema. And you know, the the previous leadership uh, uh, team said, "Well, you know, when I have a new rostering system and I have a predictive model which tells me people, and I have you know these five other really complex technology pieces, then I'll be able to to roster better." Now, my approach to that was actually to go out and speak with the team on the ground and look at what they were, how they were doing rostering, and then you know mapping our our teams to our customer customer trading patterns. Yeah. You don't need to have a, a machine learning AI model to tell you that people don't go to the cinema at ten a.m. They're much more likely to go at dinner time or after work, um, which which seems really obvious. But we weren't rostering that way, and we were rostering to a way we used to used to in the in the past. So. Uh, a non-IT solution to something that is often perceived to be an IT problem, I think, is a is a good a good skill for a you know, for a CIO to have. But certainly, that that business for business and customer focus is is absolutely number one. And of course, the other thing that sets a CIO up for success is having a good team and having a good team culture. So, can you tell us a bit about? Um, you know, how you're creating an internal culture at Village to help people thrive and, and really feel like they're hitting those professional and personal goals. Yeah, and I think there's a there's a couple of things. Um, uh, one is to encourage innovation. So um, by innovation, I mean, and what I really mean that is, is doing things differently, doing different things and doing things differently. So I, I always encourage a team and ask them, now, what are you doing? How are you doing? Have they considered a different way of, of delivering this? Um, the second is provided them with some of the those tools or toolkits they can use to, to do that. So 
so for example, so this year we partnered with uh, with AWS. We developed a, a new Skills Guild model. We call it the, the Skills Guild Tournament, which uh, AWS will will look at taking that IP and, and rolling out and giving it away to, to other customers, which, which is bought by us. I'm not in the business of selling software. I'm not in the business of selling um, skills guilds and AWS are I'm happy for them to take that IP but what I want to do is take the you know that maximum amount of, of learning and 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 you know pushing that through our team so with our team we sponsored um so we sponsored uh, cloud training AI training ml training uh we made it um you know opt in for the team so they could choose whatever they whatever it is in their area or whatever is in their uh, area of work or area of interest. They can go and they can they can do as much learning as they want, and we will and the company will pay for that. Yeah, so we we sponsor that. So we've had a a whole bunch of people become uh, cloud certified. So a huge number of the team, I'd say, we've delivered. Um, I think it's close to five thousand hours now of training to uh, our team this year. Uh, we sponsored you know dozens, you know if not more of uh, certification. Um, uh, attempt to our team and we got a better result out of it. So our teams are happier. They're, they feel like they're trained. They're trained for the future. You know, the, the skills we have today don't match the jobs of tomorrow, but, but now we've given them the skills for tomorrow so they can help, help create what those, those jobs look like. Yeah. And then the, the final piece is trying to have as much diversity in, in hiring as well. So getting people in from, from different industries. So we have, uh, we brought in some people from cinemas. We brought in some people from theme parks. Our operators were in the theme parks to supplement uh, the IT teams we create and, and who actually have actually come from the business and joined IT. So again, they're providing that, that, you know, deep customer focus. So they're thinking customer first and technology second. And that's has flow on impacts in the rest of our team. Uh, we have created cross functional teams, which has, you know, resulted in a, a great variety of ideas, uh, that have come up. We, as part of that, you know, that guild tour, we have, you know, we had a, a postcards approach. So each say our telegram we call them. So you have to write a telegram of what you wanted to do. The teams voted on on the best ideas and then we deliver them. And by having cross-functional ideas and getting people that didn't usually work with each other, we got well, growing great, great collaboration, two great cross-pollination of ideas. And three, you know, even outside of IT, you know, work that was just smoother to get through the organization now. It became the oil. Now, the collaboration is the oil that gets things that happen. It's not the sand that gets caught up in the wheel, which is what a lot of people think of. It's a mistake, I think, that uh, younger leaders make. And I would include myself in that, that, you know, you, you try and get people to, to, to talk to one another and, and consult with other people. You go, I don't want to talk to that guy. It's going to slow me down. But actually, it's the it's the grease of the wheels that, that helps it move through through the organization. So I think there's lots of things that you can do. But I think if you can create that innovative culture, you know, don't punish, which you know, involves not punishing people for trying trying new things and to a certain extent celebrating um you know small failures yeah can be catastrophic failures but but small failures where somebody has gone and tried something i mean that's just as important uh, as it is when you know everything's going right i mean if, if you if everything you do is going right then you're probably not innovating or trying enough yeah because re- so, some stuff should be failing because you should be pushing the envelope yeah and look speaking of failures and mistakes and things that we that haven't gone perfectly um is there anything when you reflect back on that was a really good lesson for you and, and really shaped you as a leader? Yeah, I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's lots. Yeah, I think the 
you know, I, th- I, I, I think I probably didn't take feedback very well when I was younger, uh, uh, whereas now I'm probably much more open to receiving feedback. I'm more open to actually going and seeking out feedback. But it took me a long time to figure that out. I think that's the that's that's one thing. I think the second thing is I was probably getting in my own way, and I think that's a. And then once I realized that, and I was like, "Oh, I'm kind of my own blocker." I think that's probably one of the the biggest things I see with middle managers now, or or, or younger managers, that the the biggest barrier to, to their success is themselves. They're kind of you know tripping themselves up. So actually getting out of your own way. Now, whether that's through listening to feedback, through acting on the advice that you do get, through you know, having good, strong mentoring relationships. Um, you know, when I was when I was younger, it was a lot of my um, my success was down to me personally doing stuff. So I look at it at a huge work effort, a huge work ethic. I put in lots of hours. If I wanted something done, I could I could get any, pretty much anything I could get done on my own. But if you want to be a leader and a leader of you know a thousand people, you can't be the person who does all the work. You can't do the work of a thousand people. So, so you know, it's much you know being a person that does the work of ten people, which is probably what I was. Now, versus being someone who can lead a thousand people to work very effectively, it's better to be the second type of person than the first type of person. And I don't think I really believed that when I was younger. So, I say that's something that I've probably learned as I've gone through my career. That the, the person who can get the best out of other people. Is, a, is is going to be more valuable to the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And is there any other, um, I guess, advice you'd give to someone who is aspiring to be an IT leader? Is there any, I mean, good career advice that you yeah. received along the way? I, yeah, I think um, I was very lucky to have, I had a great mentor early on and I was just assigned a mentor. I never, I never would have you know, said I need a mentor. I think everybody should have a mentor or a coach. And since then, I've had some some great mentors. I had like, like Lee McElaine, who you know was no longer with us, but he was the the head of technology for Europe and Accenture. So again, a very senior guy. Uh, when I was CTO at Kmart, I had uh, Mike McNamara, who was the CIO of Target USA, uh, mentoring me. I mean, I think he had like sixteen thousand people reporting to him and a you know a hundred billion dollar company. So again, had great people mentoring me. And then you know, even now in, in Australia, uh, Alex Stokes from Reboot Co is, a, is an agile coach who gives me great advice um, uh, now and then. So, so I think finding a mentor or finding several mentors, and sometimes you you need a mentor for a short period of time, and then you, know, you need to move on and find find the next one. But I think finding a mentor, and that's I think that's different to a role model. A mentor, so you can have those those um, those, those conversations with you can know, ask what, what am I doing wrong in this situation? What do you think I should do, or how would you approach this? And just somebody you can just bounce, you know, bounce those those ideas off. And it, it probably shouldn't be somebody in your chain of command. Your manager can't be a, be your mentor; it needs to be somebody else. Um, and uh, you know, another thing, and I said, you know, a mentor would be different to a role model. You should everybody should find role models and anti role models. You know, think of, think of the best leader you ever worked with. Think of the worst leader you ever worked with. What do they do? And then you know, make sure you do one set of things, and make sure you don't do the other set of things. They're the, they're, the, they're the kind of thing, but, but certainly having a, a mentor is um, something I think is important. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely resonates quite a lot with me, what you said there around uh, mentoring versus uh, role models. Um, so what's important to you, Michael, as, as we head into 2024, not long left in 2023, what are you looking at uh, for next year? Well, I think, the, I mean, Christmas is a very important time, Christmas and summer. And in the Southern Hemisphere is, is very important time for uh, both cinemas and theme parks. So 
we'll 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 slow down on the, the transformation effort uh and you know move more into uh you know, operational focus so i won't ask ask for things that you know the frontline staff at cinemas or the staff in the hotel at sea world or the uh the people at people at movie world it's time to let them operate uh, this is where we have our you know it's peak time or you know super peak for you know for theme parks uh for people going to wet and wild or movie world it's, it's a very busy time of year so it's time to step back and let the operational teams do what they do best and then ramp up those efforts again around about February after after school holidays and, and kids are kids are back at school. So I'm very conscious that we we don't get in the way of the people that are making money. So if you're not serving a customer, then you're serving someone who is serving a customer. And sometimes the best way to help those people is just not get in their way. Absolutely. Well, we wish you all the best with the rest of 2023 and 2024. Michael Fagan, Chief Transformation Officer at Village Roadshow, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.